Well, good morning. I am uh, very grateful for our board of directors, and that is a humbling message to sit here and watch in front of my church family. Um, and I'm just grateful for our board. They serve in a lot of different capacities. They, keep, they uh, make sure that our pastoral team is taken care of, and they hold us accountable with how the finances of the church are managed, all those kinds of things. If you'd like to participate in that offering today, you can do it through the normal mechanisms online. There's a drop-down bar that says pastoral gift. You can mark your envelopes that way and drop it in the thing if you want to do it that way. And again, grateful to be a part of a church that I think takes really good care of its pastors. That's one way that our board uh, seeks to to do that, and uh, thank you also for those of you that have dropped by the office with some delicious goods that are going to fuel my need to go on a diet in January. So <laughs> the holidays have begun early this year. Although the last week and a half, the staff has enjoyed those things without me. I have been overseas um, in both Brussels, Belgium, as well as the nation of Burkina Faso in West Africa, traveling with Sam Johnson, our priority one missionary. And for some of you that have been uh, tracking that on social media through the church or through my personal accounts, um, I want to give you a heads up. I went on that trip to see some of the projects that our church has supported over the last several years through Mission Forward and through Priority One. And so in Brussels, Belgium, I got to see uh, our, our, our partner seminary there, Continental Theological Seminary, which is the last spirit-filled Bible college in Central Europe which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. Um, and the state of the church in Europe is, is it's, in, it's in dire straits. It is not a strong, uh, it's not in a strong position culturally. It's not in a strong position financially, those kinds of things. And so Continental Theological Seminary relies on the support of American churches and American missionaries to continue the mission of training and raising up church leaders for the European continent. The president of Continental Theological Seminary refers to Europe as the dead continent, as the dead continent, because it is spiritually dead, it has become culturally dead. If you're familiar with both the economics and also some of the, the cultural dynamics of Europe, they are in a difficult place. Most of the nations of Europe are struggling in one form or another, and yet what I saw at Continental, I got to go with a group of, of U.S. pastors to speak at their opening conference for this school year, and what I saw there was a large number of young, called pastors and missionaries who were ready to take on the challenge of evangelizing and church planting in a difficult place, and they're able to do that because of our mission support. We support two missionaries through the Assemblies of God, Glenn Johnson and his family, and Brent Colby and his family, who are on staff there, um, supported by our missions dollars. And then we, this last summer with Sam, took an offering to help build a new dorm building there. I don't have any pictures for you this morning because I'm still trying to get back in the right time zone and uh, get used to eating American food again, which is wonderful. But, um, but I'll have some of those over the next couple of weeks. But the cool thing is we took an offering in July and that building is already, the foundation's already lay, laid, the building is being built. And by next school year, they're going to be able to have students in there. And they need that because they have more students needing to be trained than they have room for right now. Now, how many of you know that's a good problem to have that bodes well for the future? Jesus loves to restore things, and we believe he brings flourishing in dying places, right? So what better place to do that than on the dying continent? Right? And then we traveled down to Burkina Faso, which was a total uh, cultural change of pace. And I just want to say I was inspired and challenged by the church in West Africa. Because while they are far less resourced than we are, their passion for Jesus is causing them to do far more for Christ than most of us do in the United States. It was humbling, it was challenging, but one of the cool things is in 2019 and in 2020, uh, Sound Life Church gave about $150,000 to the nation of Burkina Faso to build Assemblies of God Bible schools there. And so I got to visit three different Bible schools that we helped build the facilities for, and they are packed full, like packed full of both leaders being trained their spouses and their kids, and it was just amazing to see holistic communities. They have to raise their own money for tuition. They have to bring their own food or gather it from local farms, and then they have to study in their spare time. And so it was amazing to see these students with their families. They get one nine-foot by 15-foot cement room with no door on it for their entire family. They sleep on a mat on the floor, 
and they are preparing to go get sent into potentially hostile areas in, in northern West Africa that are often dominated by some of the more aggressive uh, groups of Muslims in our world. These are people that take seriously the gospel of Jesus. And they're able to do that and grateful to do it because of the finances that we've been able to give to at least build them those facilities. But I want you to think about that, and we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks because it's a reminder to us of what we are capable of. We are capable of far more than what our culture sets us up to do, and that's true in a lot of different levels, but it's particularly true spiritually. Um, And so this morning, I just want to echo what's already been said and and say thank you for being a church that is missional. Thank you for being a church that is missional in the way that we give, missional in the way that we spend our time and our energy, because it's having a result around the world, and you can be confident that there are, there are pastors and missionaries being sent into northern and western Africa and all over the continent of Europe because of your sacrificial giving. So thank you for giving to Mission Forward. Thank you for giving to, to Priority One and Sam Johnson, who at 83 years old is really hard to keep up with. I'll just say that. The man does not need food. He just runs on coffee and about three hours of sleep, and uh, so I'm thankful to be catching up on some sleep since I've been back. But uh, it's, it was a great trip, and thank you for allowing me to be away and go check out some of our partner ministries around the world and preach in some of those settings. But this morning, I get to preach to you. And as we welcome uh, our traditions venue and those online this morning, I want to ask you a question because it's an important question. It's an important question in a world that is broken and is not quite what God intended it to be. The question is this, what do you do when something wrong is happening right in front of you. What do you do when something wrong is happening right in front of you? And this can be anywhere from the stay-at-home parent who is exhausted and knows that there is a conflict happening in the other room or their children are doing something they shouldn't and you kind of just want to leave them alone because you're tired of dealing with it. It could be the person that's in the workplace and you know something unscrupulous is happening, that someone is benefiting financially from some circumstances that they should not or using their authority in a way that they should not for another coworker. It could happen just in a social setting that you, where unexpectedly something happens in front of you. The problem when something wrong happens is rarely are you prepared for it. Have you noticed that? No one plans for things to go wrong. They just tend to happen that way. And I, was, I experienced this a few weeks ago. Um, I was at a Mariners game, God rest their season, and, um, and was enjoying a Mariners game with a friend. And um, I, you know, when I go to the Mariners game, there's a couple things. Like I enjoy the athletic uh, part of it. I enjoy the aesthetics of a massive stadium and lights and all those things. But I'll just tell you what, one of the things I get excited about even now, my mouth is watering thinking about it, is garlic fries. I get excited about garlic fries. I get excited about some of the food that's there. And to, to enjoy that over nine innings plus, because the Mariners love to stretch things out sometimes, you have to get a refillable soft drink. You know, the, the Mariner's Cup that's refillable that costs like $18 or something ridiculous like that. So the way that I like to get my money's worth is get as many refills as possible. And so it was about, is between the eighth and ninth inning, the game was tied up. The Mariners did win at the end, for those of you that are going to wonder. And I was like, man, I got to go get a refill before they finish shutting everything down. And so I went in between, as they were switching out innings to go get probably my 19th refill of the evening. Needless to say, you need to know where the restrooms are at as well. I saw Mike Nichols at the same game with his son. Anyways, I I went to go get a refill, and as I'm hurrying back, because the game is tied, ninth inning, I hear some yelling. And there aren't many people um, out of the stands because the game is close, it's the end of the game, the people that didn't want to see it have already left, so most people are focused on the game. So I'm hurrying back with my refill, and I hear this yelling, and to my left... I see a man in the face of a woman yelling full volume, profanities, rage, and clearly alcohol. It takes me just a couple seconds to realize there's a lot going on here that is probably um, because he got too many refills of something other than a soft drink. But I'm kind of faced with this situation. I kind of look around. I don't see anybody else. And there's this woman being screamed at by this man, and I'm thinking, oh, man. And I just want to go back to my seat and see the Mariners win the game, right? Like I just, so I kind of watch for a second, 
take a couple sips, think, okay, they'll just cool it off, it'll be fine, work it out later, keeps yelling. In fact, more in her face, kind of starting to, to physically lay some hands on it. I think, oh, man. And I look again, no security anywhere, nobody in a uniform. And I think, oh, why does this always happen to me? Sometimes these settings, I feel like they happen to me more than everybody else. I don't think that's actually true, but it does feel that way. And so I just think I can't do nothing. Sometimes you're in a situation you don't know what to do, but you know you can't do nothing right? And I know I can't do nothing. And so I just kind of start slowly walking as if I'm watching the game over their shoulders because the stands are on the other side of them, walking until I'm in the, in the eye shot of this man who is just raging on what seems to be his girlfriend or his wife. And then once I'm in his eye shot, I just kind of start slowly kind of going closer, still sipping, you know, hiding behind my cup, you know, and, and, and watching the game right over and thinking, you know, maybe my presence will get him to just chill out a little bit. The other thing that I'm, I'm also processing in my head is what happens if something worse happens? Like, it, he's so angry, the next step would be to physically attack this woman. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I, I, am, I am undefeated when wrestling my children at home. But I can't attribute that to any self-defense training or anything else. I'm not an officer of the law other than uh, when I got to lay down the law at home. But all that to say, I'm thinking, what do I even do? Like, what's, what am I going to, you know, do I scream for help or do I, you know? And I'm thinking, I have to, I have to help this lady. Whatever the circumstance goes, I have to, I have to help her. And I probably have a better chance of surviving whatever happens than she does. You know, you start to think through these things in a moment of duress. Now, thankfully, my presence as I got closer seemed to make him aware, and he kind of chilled out a little bit, and then some security officers that someone had called did come on the scene and, and, and escorted the man off the premises, right? And, and uh, you know, all of my, all of my fears were, were taken away. But it reminds us of these moments when we are faced with something wrong happening right in front of us. And sometimes it might be physical aggression like that. Sometimes it's just ethics that are not being lived out in a, in a slow but painful way right in front of us. And what do we do when something wrong happens right in front of us? The reason this question matters is because we have been reflecting on the right way of doing life. We're reflecting on the way of the Lord that God called Abraham to and has called all of his family of faith that he began with Abraham to. It's this, this idea that is summed up in Genesis 18, 19, where God said, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In a broken world, the way that we experience the blessings of God is by living life the way God intended it to be lived. The way of the Lord. The right way of doing things. And the Bible makes no bones about it. It claims to have the right way of doing things in a world full of wrong ways. And it sums up both in this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, premier verse as well as many other times throughout the Old Testament, it sums up the way of the Lord in these two key terms, righteousness and justice. And these two, these two terms are, are two Hebrew words that are paired together over 50 times throughout the Old Testament and then are referred to often in the other languages of the New Testament. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness from the Hebrew word tzedakah is doing what is right in every relationship, divine and human, according to God's standard. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is just doing what's right by everybody around you, doing what's right to human beings regardless of their status or relationship with you, doing what's right by God, and all according not to how you feel or they feel or anyone else feels, but according to what God says. God kind of says, hey, I created it. I know what it was all for. I know how this thing produces life. My way is the right way. God's standard determines what is right in our relationships. And sometimes that means we even discipline our own feelings in the moment, or we don't even give what someone else feels in the moment. Have you ever told your children, I know what you want, but I'm not going to give it to you because it's not good for you? Right? That our feelings or someone else's feelings don't determine what's right. God determines what's right. 
And the number one way that he has revealed that to us is through his word. So righteousness is when we are living relationally according to God's standard. That's a good thing. That's the goal for all of us. And righteous living leads to flourishing. It leads to experiencing the results of God's promises. When we fall short of righteousness, we can be forgiven and experience those blessings thanks to Jesus' grace and his work on the cross. But there's this other term. God doesn't just like to leave unrighteousness unrighteous. He likes to restore things that are broken. Praise the Lord, because that's all of us. And so there's this other term, justice, from the Hebrew word mishpat, which is making right what is wrong in a broken world according to God's standard. It's when you recognize something is wrong in your life, something that is wrong in a relationship around you, something that is wrong between you and God, anytime you begin to work towards the restoration or reconciliation of that situation, you are working on justice. And sometimes justice needs to be done in an individual relationship. Sometimes it needs to be done in a corporate relationship, right? And we like the idea of justice when it's done on people that have hurt us. We don't always want to be the subjects of justice, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But justice restores righteousness where it's been lost. Justice does the work of reconciling relationships, of restoring things to people that have been disenfranchised, of restoring things that are broken. And so we have these two ideas of righteousness, doing what is right relationally, and justice, restoring what is wrong relationally, that really define what it means to live the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord does right, and the way of the Lord restores what's wrong. Now, the right thing, that's, that's one idea, and Pastor Darren talked last week about how living rightly is just the wise way to live. It's the best way to live. Living in ways that honor the people around you, that honor God, living in ways that, that honor everyone and how you handle your time and your money and some of the other things that you do, living wisely and righteously is just the best way to live. And that makes sense. But what do we do with justice? What do we do when we recognize that there's something wrong in the world? I mean, we have some different options, don't we? We can either kind of, you know, if it's not affecting us personally, we can kind of just use avoidance, kind of turn our head and hope somebody else deals with it. You know, kind of like me, stalling, hoping that security would come and help with the situation, hoping I wouldn't have to get involved. You know, there's a certain level of avoidance that we might take. We might, we might use the tactic of aggression, that, you know, we're going to fight fire with fire and where injustice is happening, we are going to crush injustice with our own abilities and powers and talents and, and, and resources. Sometimes that works and sometimes it just creates different issues, right? Jesus had so many different ways of handling injustice. I mean, he did a little bit of everything. He was always so discerning of what the situation required, Right, it seemed like he handled the injustices of, of people that had committed horrible sins like tax fraud and, and prostitution and taking, other, taking advantage of people. He handled those one way. He handled religious injustices another way, sometimes with words, sometimes with actions. I don't know that there's always one right way, but the thing that Jesus never did is he never ran away from injustice. I mean, even by God coming to live a human life in this broken world, God did not run away from injustice. He ran right to it and began to restore what was broken, right? And so the question for us is, what do we do with that? When the Queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon because she had heard reputation of, this, of this, this culture, this kingdom that was built on wisdom, was built on righteousness, that King Solomon became famous for his sense of justice, that when, you'll remember the story of when the two women came fighting over the baby and he had to decide whose, whose child it was, that he had this way of working out justice in the situations that, that gave him this reputation. So the Queen of Sheba came to just view how is this kingdom working and she summed it up in first kings chapter 10 verse 9 saying this she said blessed be the lord your god who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of israel because the lord loved israel his people forever he has made you king why so that you may execute justice and righteousness 
And we have here, would you put that scripture back up just a little longer? We have here the, the reality of a role that was given for the purpose to execute righteousness and justice. Why did the queen of Sheba see that God had made Solomon king? Because he was going to be faithful to execute righteousness and justice. Those were the priorities which he was using his authority to accomplish. And the same is true of every role that you are given in life. You are given various roles in life, sometimes in your family, sometimes in your workplace, sometimes in society. Politicians are great examples of this. They are given their authority by God. Why? They are responsible to God, and you and I are responsible to God to execute righteousness, right relationship between all people that are under our supervision or authority and right relationship between them and God. And we are responsible to execute justice. When righteousness is broken, we are in charge of restoring it. That's true if you are a parent with kids that are gonna, by nature, by sinful nature, have issues with righteousness and need some healthy family justice, to restore things, that's true in the business world that you as an employer, as a manager, as someone that is managing even customer relations, you are responsible for righteousness and justice. You're responsible for those things. And even apart from roles of authority, because some of us would say, well, I don't really have any real authority. At the end of the day, the entire nation of Israel was responsible for those same two things, to execute righteousness and justice. Maybe not from a throne, but in their own spheres of influence. And so the prophet Micah, when Israel was walking through judgment, he, he really sums up what God's frustration with the nation of Israel is and, and what they should have been doing. He says in, verse, in chapter six, verse eight, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Those last two phrases there are about right relationships with people and with God, right? Love kindness. Walk humbly before God. Those are righteous relationships. And the first one is when things are not righteous, you need to do justice. We are responsible to use our influence to work for the justice of others. We're responsible. Every little bit of influence you have, you are responsible to use your influence to work for the justice of other people. Whether that's your kids, your coworkers, or the people in the world around you that we want to operate in ways that, that work that out. And there's a blessing that comes with it. It's all through scripture that there's a blessing on those who sacrifice of themselves for the sake of righteousness and justice. Psalm 106, three tells us that blessed are they who observe justice and who, who do righteousness at all times. There's a consistency and an integrity of doing the way of the Lord that brings blessing. Psalm 112.5 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Which, by the way, generosity is often associated with being a just person because it's often the generosity of those who are blessed that helps restore life for those who have been victims of injustice, Right? So there's this responsibility that we have. And you know this, if you've, if you've been around this church for a while, you know I hate responsibility. It's so frustrating. I mean, it's just all work and no play. But I have found that if I wanna be mature and if I wanna live life the way God has called me to, that there's no avoiding responsibility. That's a cultural myth in our nation right now, that you can avoid responsibility and still live a good life and be a good person. You can't. We're responsible. And we're responsible to do justice. So in a world that's so full of injustice, what do we do with that? Right, if you're responsible for injustice and you walk out of here and you're like, okay, Caleb, game on. I'm responsible for all injustice that I see. How far will you make it before you see some injustice? I mean, how far, how far will, you, will you make it before you see some problems that need to be need to be taken care of. And man, the minute that you pull up the news or the minute that you pull up social media or pull up anything on your phone, you're gonna see evidence of injustice all around the world, right? We're in a political cycle and some of the issues that our lawmakers will be arguing over are actually issues of justice, right? And while, while everyone likes to be, to be on the popular side of justice, we can't all be right, 
There are differing opinions. What do we do about these things? I mean, everything from, there are some people in the world that do not have access to clean water. That's kind of crazy for us here in the United States where you could drink water out of most places that you can find it. Right, there, there are places in the world that suffer with curable diseases that we will never deal with here in our nation. There's uh, issues with food, food shortages for hungry people and, and children starving that, that obviously Convoy of Hope is one of the ways that we seek to address some of those things. What about homelessness and crime in our own community? I, can't, I am shocked at the number of front doors of businesses that I have seen covered in plywood over the last year and a half because crime has gone unpunished. And that's an injustice. It's a horrible injustice. What about abuse? The, the, the rates of domestic violence in our local community are pretty extreme. We're not known, if, are, are not, not known for an area that does well with that. What about the statistics, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the statistics of, of child sex trafficking on the West Coast? What about that? Like, what do we do about that? What do we do about the foster care epidemic and the, the tons of children that are in the foster care system with, with really just be, being recycled through a system? Not a lot of hope of, of really being at home in a healthy family. I mean, if, you don't have to look far to find injustices, right? What about the issues that have, have been big in our nation recently, issues of race, that regardless of, of where your stance or experience with those things, there's some issues in our culture with racism, right? What about, what about uh, the unborn and, and the issues of abortion in our society and the number of children that have never made it out of the womb? That's an injustice. What about women that have been abandoned and have been left no option, culturally speaking, but to choose abortion? That's an injustice. And I'm just listing a handful. I mean, I could go on for another hour listing one problem after another. So if you and I are responsible for justice, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Do we just give up? Do we just kind of say it's too big for me? Do we take the avoidance strategy and just kind of be happy that our own lives are relatively unaffected? You know, if the worst problem in your life is that gas is really expensive, you're a really lucky person, right? Annoying as it is. Or do we try to jump into the fray? I mean, in, in recent years, it's been very popular to just take up a cause, right? To take up a cause on social media, to post something, to say, I'm a part of this cause. I'm opposed to that thing, or to give a little money to this, or give a little money to that, or, or go all in and become a, an advocate for this or for that. I mean, th that's not a bad thing if it's the right cause, if it's a, something that's in alignment with God's righteousness and justice. But we have a, a culture full of supposed social justice warriors jumping on one cause after another, and it doesn't seem to be helping much. It tends to be exacerbating more things, I think. Why is that? And where do we focus our energy and what do we do with that? And the Bible presents us with some categories of starting places. The Bible over and over again mentions certain categories of people that are targets of injustice that we should probably consider first. And I would say that we should consider those first in our own community. We should consider those first when we think about some of the election cycles coming up. And as Christians, we do not have... We do not have the luxury of simply voting according to what is most convenient for ourselves. If, if you are voting to preserve what is most convenient for yourselves, and that is the only motive in how you vote, then you are voting like a pagan, not like a Christian. If you are voting because you see a lack of righteousness and justice in our nation and you are voting in such a way that you are hoping and praying and working outside of voting and, and seeking God on behalf of issues in our culture, that our culture would flourish in the right ways, not in the wrong ways, that's voting like a Christian. If you're voting and knowing that's just part of the influence God's given you, it's not the primary way that, that uh, redemption comes to any culture or nation. 
you know that it's a drop in the bucket and it's far more likely that your prayers, your evangelism, your discipleship, that that is what will change our nation more than any vote you ever cast or any candidate in office than you're voting like a Christian. Anything else than that is idolatry and needs to be repented of and needs to be put back in the category that God put it in as a privilege for citizens in our nation that needs to be stewarded accordingly. So what do we do? What do we do with that? We look at these categories in scripture and and the first category that scripture offers over and over and over again is often two categories lumped into one. It's the categories of the widow and the orphan. The widow and the orphan. It's women and children that do not have a husband or a father to offer both the relational and often economic and physical support that God intended for a healthy family. And there could be a lot of different reasons that someone is orphaned or widowed. I think in our day and age that there are many people just widowed and and orphaned by a culture that, that puts no responsibility on anyone if they don't want it that allows divorce and abandonment to happen at incredible rates in far too easy of a way with very little responsibility associated. But James 1.27 says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Notice that there's a spiritual dynamic along with the, the relational dynamic, that not only do you care for orphans and widows, but you don't let the world corrupt you. Because it's spiritual corruption that leads to injustice. It's idolatry that leads to injustice. And so we have to do both. The widow and the orphan are the first category. The second category that gets a lot of publicity in both Old and New Testament is that of the foreigner. That Exodus chapter twenty-two twenty-one is one of many verses that speaks as it says, you must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now, why would foreigners be a category, a target of injustice? Because when you don't, I actually experienced not injustice, but I experienced the the dilemma of being a foreigner over these last couple weeks. When you don't speak the language and you don't understand the culture, you are an easy target to be taken advantage of. Right? When you don't have the support of family and community, you are an easy target to be taken advantage of. It doesn't take much to go wrong for your life to be in a, in a desperate situation, right? And so the Bible says that we are responsible to help with foreign people that are among us. That's an interesting responsibility. What do we do with that? Jesus regularly stepped over social and cultural barriers to embrace people. And we're called to do the same. And then the third category that is mentioned over and over throughout Scripture, and this is not a surprising one, is the poor. The poor. Help him... It's a prayer for the king in Psalm 72, 2. Help him judge your people in the right way. So there's justice and righteousness. Let the poor always be treated fairly. Let the poor always be treated fairly. And so these are categories, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor. These are four categories that appear over and over again throughout scripture. Now, are they the only categories of injustice in the world? Absolutely not. But if you think about even a lot of the lists that I mentioned before, who are the people that end up at the the short end of the stick in most of those situations? Are women and children, are people without citizenship, and are people that do not have the resources to pay their way through a a situation? Now, I will say that all of those situations can, can be affected by different circumstances. The poor biblically are separated from the poor fool in Proverbs who has had a chance and has squandered their opportunities, right? The poor fool is lazy and is irresponsible with resources, and the Bible doesn't have a lot of compassion for the poor fool. The Bible has compassion for the poor who ha- are at a resource disadvantage and cannot get the resources to survive and to live well, right? So we have to use discernment in what, what, what actually fits these categories because we actually live in a culture where people would like to say, I'm that, I need help. And when we look at the poor, the issues globally are far greater than the issues here in our culture. We do have some issues in our culture, though, as well, 
right? We have issues as, as prices go through the roof. We have issues as insurance premiums go through the roof. We have issues as housing costs go through the roof. We're creating some problems for ourselves that are gonna result in more haves and have-nots, that are gonna result in more of that desperation if we're not careful. And so we have to look at all these things and we have to, to consider these categories. And these are not the only categories that merit justice. In fact, if we went around the church this morning and we heard everybody's story, every person in this broken world has been a victim of injustice in some way, shape, or form. Every person has. We've all been at the wrong end of a power differential. We've all been fooled or taken advantage of at some point or another. We've all been victims of injustice in some way, shape, or form, and probably all of us have been complicit in some injustice. We don't like to think about that, but, and hopefully not, hopefully minimally or not at all, but we probably all participated in some situations where someone else got the short end of the stick because we benefited instead, right? And so these, are, these categories are not the only ones, but these categories represent anyone who is taken advantage of. And the way that the Bible responds to them is the way we are to respond to injustice in our world. We are resp to respond with compassion. We are to respond with advocacy. We are re to respond with action. We are to respond investing ourselves. And one part of that is political. One part of that is that we vote accordingly. And so we need to be thinking as we approach a, a, a voting season, we need to be thinking about how do we do what is best, not just for ourselves, but how do we do what's best for, as, for everyone? How do we do something that is best for all people involved as best as we are capable of? How do we, how do we consider orphans and widows in our society when we vote? How do we consider those who do not have fathers and parents in our society when we vote. And I think some categories we have to consider, we have to consider things like the unborn, to consider the, the, the abortion epidemic in our society, and there has to be better solutions to some of the problems being addressed than, than taking away the life of a, of a baby, right? And I wanna say that with so much compassion because I know there are those among us that have participated in abortion and, and often not because you had all the information. And the beauty of the gospel is that no matter what we have done, and I am guilty of some horrible things in my own life, no matter what we have done, Jesus has forgiven us. And Jesus wants to set us on a path that restores more life than we ever took or was ever taken from us. And so do not for a moment believe that there is no hope for you. Do not for a moment believe that there is some unforgivable sin you have committed. Jesus has a plan for every one of us. He is the ultimate, uh, uh, he is the ultimate justice doer, the ultimate restorer of what is broken. But we have to consider What's our responsibility there? We need to begin to advocate for situations like the foster care system in our state. We need to advocate for better solutions to some of those problems. We need to advocate for justice in our communities, right? We need to advocate for healthy amounts of law and authority to be used to implement the right kinds of justice in our communities. We need to, honestly, we need to take seriously uh, the, the words of scripture according to widows. We need to take seriously how do, we, how do we provide for and protect and stand up for single women in our society. Now granted, I think our society has more benefits for women than most do around the world today and most have in history, but women have often been the victims of power differentials. And the statistics of, of domestic violence in our community right now bear witness to that as well, right? And by the way, that's not to shame men like our culture has done uh, relentlessly over the last at least 30 years that I've been aware of it. It's to say, men, you have been given authority and influence and power and you can use it for good or you can use it for harm. Use it for good. Use it for good. And don't be ashamed of it. Use it for good. We need to consider in this voting cycle, like what, what are the right policies when it relates to foreigners? 
That's not only what it relates to immigration and our borders and some of the policies there, but also what, is it, how does, that, what does that mean for foreign policy? What, what responsibility do we have to the nations around us as a nation that is an economic power in our world? What responsibilities do we have to the nations around us? Now, I'll be the first to say I don't have all the answers on these issues. I'm not standing here because I'm, I'm, the, you know, I'm the smartest poli-sci major in the world. I'm just saying when I read the Bible, I know that we're responsible and that Christians should lead the way in those conversations. Christians should lead the way. We need some amazing, godly, biblical leaders to step up in the realm of politics, to step up in the realm of societal policy and, and to step up in some of the areas of justice. We need godly people in those, in those realms. And you might be a better option than some of the ones we're gonna be voting on here in a couple weeks, Right? We need to consider the poor, and again, I'll say the need globally, I think, is far greater than any of the needs locally, but we also have to look out in our own spheres of influence. Where are those that have less than we do, and how can we help? How can we help? One of the cool things that I want to say, because this is some heavy stuff, is I do believe that this is a church that is involved in many of these situations, one of my responsibilities and our board and pastoral team's responsibilities is to steward the finances and the ministries of this church to try to do as much righteousness and justice as possible. When we look at different missionary ventures and we look at different uh, partners like Convoy of Hope or Priority One, I'm looking for these biblical categories to be addressed in biblical ways. I'm looking for ways that we can invest our money and our energy in ways that are accomplishing justice in the world around us. But once again, I wanna say that our responsibility is not just political, and our responsibility isn't just financial. The, the way to focus on justice always has to be more personal than it is political. And so it brings us back to what do we do? How do we do justice? And I would say that for you and I, on, on an average day, on an average week, the way that we do justice is we do justice when we put compassion into action. Anytime that you see something that, that, sp that sparks compassion in your heart and you respond with action, anytime you see someone that is, is going through a hard time, anyone, anytime you see someone that is, is experiencing some disadvantage or some difficulty in their life and you take action, you get in the game, you involve yourself, you offer prayer, support, time, money, whatever the resource and the need is and you decide I'm going to meet the need in front of me today, I think that is where justice begins to change a nation. I think that when groups of people like us prayerfully and lovingly do justice through compassion everywhere that we go, that's what begins to change communities, right? And we don't do it because we are so good. We don't do it because we are so perfect. We do it because Jesus has done it for us. We do it because Jesus reached down in his compassion and said, I'm gonna make some things right that are wrong inside of you. And then I'm gonna use you to make some things right that are wrong in this world around you. And when we live with that kind of vision, our compassion is meaningful and not wasted in this world. Our compassion has an impact that goes not just to the surface of a person, but to the soul. And that's justice in action. It's more than just a cause. It's more than a check we write or a vote that we cast. It's a way of life that we live, that we will not live in such a way that when we see the wrongs around us, we turn our heads and walk away. That we don't see the things around us and we say, well, I hope somebody else shows up to fix that. We don't see the wrongs in the world around us and say, well, the government should do something about that. We say, what, can I, Lord, do you want me to do something about this? Lord, would you like me to be involved here? And you know, some of the great Christian ministries of history have sparked out of godly people simply saying, God, what do you want me to do? Compassion and action is a powerful response. And compassion and action sometimes simply looks like hospitality. It looks like you welcoming people into your home. Is your home your private safe place where as long as you're comfortable there, it doesn't matter what happens to the world around you? Or are you looking to invite people into your home? People that aren't like you, people that don't have what you have, people that maybe eat different food than what you eat. Are you inviting people and building the family of God with the resources that you've been given? I'll tell you what, food around a table is a powerful statement 
of justice in a world that divides people. It's a powerful statement. Food's powerful in a lot of ways, right? But hospitality can do great things. Advocacy, speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Sometimes it's simply being the awkward person in a meeting that says, hey, have we thought about how that's gonna affect this other group of people? Hey, have we thought about how that budget decision is gonna affect not just our bottom line, but affect these other employees in our company? Hey, have we thought about how, how this decision is going to feel to these other people? You know, I think even as our government continues to make decisions in a direction that I don't think is, is good, particularly on a state level, you know, even to think about some of the things that I think are very damaging that are being implemented in our public school systems. We have a lot of wonderful Christian teachers that we need you to be examples of godliness, but there are also gonna be moments where you have to raise your hand and be that awkward person and say, hey, what about the other way of looking at things? Right? When, when, uh, when I think, and I, you know, this is, this is, I think, a biblical perspective, that when ungodly versions of sexuality and gender are being pushed and indoctrinated on whole generations of young people, is anyone going to stand up and say, I don't think that this is healthy for our young people? Yes. But do you know what happens? Is because of our own desire for comfort, we ignore injustice. And Christians, when we understand the promises of God, we are not afraid. We are not afraid to speak the truth in love. We're not jerks about it. Do not be a jerk about it. And if you are a jerk about it, do not tell them you go to Sound Life Church. <laughs> Don't tell them you go to any church. Right, but when we speak the truth in love, we are, that's compassion and action. It's saying, hey, if what God says is true is the way to flourishing, and this is absolutely opposed to what God says is true, which by the way, generally, when it's opposed to what God says is true, it's usually opposed to our biology. It's opposed to mathematics. It's opposed to science. It's opposed to psychology. It's opposed to all those things too if you do the research because God built it all. He knows how it works. He knows how it works best scientifically, socially, and spiritually. And sometimes the best thing that we can do is just be the voice that says, have we thought about, right? Justice looks like hospitality, advocacy. It looks like generosity. On Thanksgiving, I have on my heart to do something this year. The, the Sunday before Thanksgiving is I wanna take a Thanksgiving offering and I just want to ask you if, you, if you can reflect on this year and say, man, God has done good things in my life. I wanna give you an opportunity to be generous on the Sunday before Thanksgiving and that offering is gonna go to ministry partners like Convoy of Hope because I'm just watching what's happening in Ukraine and my heart is breaking for people that are still just, their lives are shredded while my life is still very comfortable. I'm gonna, we wanna give some of that money to Priority One and continue the work that's happening in Burkina Faso. We wanna give some of that money to some of our missionaries who because of the economic inflation, people have cut their support and I wanna help make up the difference in some of their support. There's some other things that are gonna to go to really, I think, these categories to the, the foreigners, the poor, the widows and the orphans and we're gonna to give to some of those things on Thanksgiving Sunday, not because anybody got a huge government check this year. It's easy to give when you're like passing on the government's money, right? But when inflation's going up and your paycheck isn't, has God still been good to you? I got home from that, that long flight and I sat in my living room and I think, God, you've been so good to me. Are there things that I want? Yes. Are there things that aren't quite everything that they could be in my life? Yes. But am I blessed? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would rather show God that. And generosity is a powerful statement of putting other people ahead of yourself. It's justice. And prayer is the most powerful thing. You know, we restore justice and righteousness by sharing the good news of Jesus more than any other thing. We do that through prayer. We do that through personal relationships. And you might say, what is sharing the good news? What does evangelism have to do with injustice? Here's the thing. All injustice between people starts by injustice between us and God. When we reject the one who gave us life, 
When we reject the God who created us and we reject the way he called us to live, that is a grievous injustice. Now, could God do something about it? Yes. And at the proper time, he will. And at the cross, he already has done something about it. But here's the reality. When we get out of righteous relationship with God, we start to get out of right relationship with other people. Why? Because when you reject God, you always do it for the same reason, because you want to be God. Sometimes there are sin patterns in my life. I'm like, God, why do I have this sin pattern in my life? It always comes back to the same thing. I'd like to be God in that area of my life. I want to be God. I want people to treat me like God. I want to have the influence and the power of God. And I always misuse it because I'm not wise enough. I'm not good enough to use it the way he uses it. And so when we reject God, we try to be our own God. And what do we do with that God-likeness? We use it to manipulate and coerce and get what we want for ourselves. And that's where injustice comes from, right? And so when we share the good news, when we evangelize the people around us, first of all, we're restoring the relationship between people and God. And the greatest social justice movements in history have been when revival has swept nations, Do you know when the spiritual great awakenings happened in the history of the United States? They were at moral lows. They were at times when alcoholism, when sexual promiscuity, when uh, orphandom was bigger than at other times in history. When the culture was falling apart, people began to pray and share the good news. And it brought not only spiritual revival, it brought social revival. That many of the great social reforms in our nation came out of spiritual revival moments. And so when we pray and preach, and you might be like, Caleb, you're the preacher. I'm not the preacher. May God anoint you to preach the gospel to your families, to your workplaces, to your communities, in your personality, in your own way, in the right setting. You don't have to yell like I do every week. I don't know why I yell. I tell myself not to yell. I get excited and I yell. But you can preach the gospel. Because it's what saves souls. It's what gives the people that are victims of injustice hope that there will be justice. It's what gives people that are longing for righteousness a model for righteousness. That preaching the gospel is the way to get to justice. And that's why there's no amount of voting that will ever solve our problems. It's surrender to the one just king that has ever been in this world. It's surrender to him that begins the restoration process. And that's why when all else fails, when we work for justice, and there will be times where you work for justice, you pray for justice, we give towards justice, and injustice still seems to win. It seems to win. And what do we do in those moments? What do we do when when abusers seem to prevail in situations? We trust that there is a God who does not control our every move, but he is in control. And he has awaited to mete out complete justice until the proper time when everyone has had a chance at redemption, when everyone has had a chance at confession, and he will bring justice. We're gonna talk about that next week. We're gonna talk about also, I should just warn you, we're gonna talk about the wrath of God, we're gonna talk about hell, we're gonna talk about the cross. It'll be good. There'll be a happy ending. There'll be a happy ending. But the bottom line is this Psalm 103.6 says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You know, there are times I see situations and I feel powerless to do anything and I pray verses like that. I'm like, Lord, you said, you said you would work justice for the oppressed. You said you would do something about it. So God, I am counting on you. If I don't see it before my dying breath, I am counting on you to bring justice to this situation. I am counting on you to bring justice to those that I have no power to bring justice to. And we are meant to pray prayers like that. We're meant to believe things like that. For some of you, you may be in an abusive situation in your job or in your marriage or in your family. And I want you to hold God to that. Say, God, you said you'd bring justice. And you watch and you wait and you do not give up because there will come a day when you will look and you'll be, God, why did I ever question you? You had a better strategy than I ever thought. 
You had a way. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing. There is nothing broken that God cannot restore. Nothing broken that he can't restore. There's nothing you will go through that he can't make up to you. And I cannot explain it other than that I have experienced it, that there, were, there are things that I thought would never be healed, that would never be restored, that could never be fixed in my life. And God has not only restored and healed and fixed those things, but he's then used them as a source of blessing in my life. God cannot lose. And so we work for justice to be like him and then we trust him when our work is not enough to bring full justice. And that is why we sing this morning, we sing about joy, we sing about confidence, we praise God even in the midst of a broken world. Do you know that our worship is a powerful declaration of justice? It's a powerful declaration of hope to an otherwise hopeless world. It's crazy that Christians worship God in the midst of a broken world. You think about what is going on in Ukraine. There are still Christians worshiping there. They're not worshiping there because they've received justice. They're worshiping there because they know a God who will bring them justice. Right? There are Christians worshiping like crazy worshiping. Put us to shame worshiping in Burkina Faso. Not because they have medicine or have enough food guaranteed or have a comfortable house or any of those things because they are confident that Jesus has all those things for them, that he will provide for their needs, that he is their defender even when their government cannot guarantee it to them. They have confidence in Jesus. So this morning, the question for us, church, is what are the broken things in front of you that you need to do something about? And again, some of them are hard. You need to pray a lot before you take compassion on some of these things. Lead with your prayers, not just open your mouth, right? Be obedient and then step with the Holy Spirit. We need to get desperate for the Holy Spirit like never before and then be obedient to walk in step with him. Be obedient to take action with him. We need to put ourselves in situations that are vulnerable to us, that are vulnerable to us to say, hey God, do you wanna use me here? I, um, you know, was preparing this message this week and was dropping off my daughter at school and I was getting back on the freeway and I saw a car broken down and a guy standing there pouring rain and I was like, oh man, you know, what do we think? Oh man, that's too bad for him. <laughs> Whew, glad that's not me. And I was like, you know what? I can help him. So I just pulled over right on the side of the, the, the on-ramp and rolled down my window and I said, hey, what can I do to help? And in that moment, he looked shocked, like, what, are you, what do you want from me? You know, we don't talk to each other in our society. And he said, he thought, then he thought about it for a second. He's like, you know what, I have somebody on the way, and I think I'm okay, but thanks for offering. Sometimes it's not even what you do. It's that you put yourself in a situation to be used, right? You put yourself out there, and you say, God, if you want to use me, I'm available. And, and I'll be the first person to say sometimes, God, I'd prefer you didn't use me. But that's not... That's a sinful heart, right? That's a selfish, immature heart. I don't want my kids to grow up that way. I don't want my church to live that way. I don't want to be known for living that way. Jesus never lived that way. So what has God put in front of you that you need to do? For some of you, husbands, fathers, you need to take more responsibility in your home. Oof. Some guys like, see, this is why I don't come to church. Hey, you'll find a whole lot of brothers here in the same situation, right? We take more responsibility in our home to be spiritual leaders, to be leaders in, in thought and word and action, right? To care and protect and, and be that presence of God in our home that we are called to represent. For some of you, it is in the workplace. For some of you, it's policies being made in, in the business world or in the education world or in the political world that God is going to equip you. You don't have to be the smartest person, the perfect person. He's gonna equip you. And where you fall short, you can have confidence that God has your back. God has your back. God is your provider, not any job. God is your, is your champion, not any candidate. God is the one. God's the one. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?
Father, we're overwhelmed because we are small and this world you've put us in is big. And I don't always know why, but you have put us in a, a culture and given us technology and resources that gives us access into the global perspective that you have. We see the, the challenges of our own society. We see the challenges of the world around us. And Lord, we're also faced with the challenges on the inside of us and in our own homes and hearts. And Father, we just confess this morning that on our own, we are not capable of making right everything that's wrong. That we need a just God to come and do justice in us and around us. We need a God who is compassionate and merciful and loving and righteous to be in charge of all of the justice that needs to happen. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son and on the cross, you did the greatest work of justice and the greatest work of mercy that the world has ever seen. But Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would begin to strengthen us and burden us and call us to be messengers of justice in a world that doesn't even know what that looks like. So Father, would you anoint your church just like you anointed your son to preach good news, to heal the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to minister in the categories of injustice in this world and let our community and our nation and our world be better because we were here. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.